Titus 2 verse 15, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And the grass withers and the flower fades, But God's word alone endures forever and may he bring his blessing to it. Well, the title of this message uh, this morning is about the freedom to live godly. And if I can put a plug in for our evening service, there we're going to be talking about the liberty, if you will, of our conscience. And uh, it's all about the law of liberty in connection with that, a measure of freedom there as well. So it's a a Sunday where we're reflecting on the freedoms that we have in the Lord Jesus and what we do with that freedom. And we know that freedom to live godly comes because, as Paul has echoed here, because of the grace, the mighty work of God's grace in saving us. And, And so we're called to live godly lives. We're called to live as Uh, light and truth before the nation in which we live. Now, when you start to think about our nation, and I know this is something that a lot of people often think, uh, that Canada was once a Christian nation and that we have fallen away from that. And and I really want to challenge that kind of thinking. Was Canada ever a so-called Christian nation? I guess it depends on how you want to define a Christian nation. But I think in asking that question, these are my thoughts, asking whether Canada was a Christian nation is asking, was the Roman Empire ever a Christian empire? I believe the problem comes because many of us often confuse or equate Uh, having a basis of moral law that reflects the Ten Commandments as making us Christian. Or many often confuse or equate having a predominant uh, religious culture as equating to a Christian nation. Or perhaps having an incumbent leader who is a Christian uh, equating that with the whole. I think that's where we run into the problem of thinking we're a Christian nation because we have certain things in place. Well, it, it might be true that Christianity 
was a principle defining character of the laws of our nation. And granted, within Canada, some parts of our society have a mask of of some sort of religion, and Christianity is still yet a part of that. But I believe in reality, just like Rome, Canada is and has been largely non-Christian, even pagan. And that may offend some people to hear that. But I think now more than ever, we are seeing not the roots of Christianity coming forth, we are seeing all the roots of paganism coming forward. Now more than ever, even within our legislative bodies, an anti-Christian agenda is in force. We have what, in keeping with what we've been learning from Titus, we have the idols of self-expression, idols of moral freedom and materialism and hedonism in full swing. And we're all surprised because we thought the roots of Christianity would have kept them at bay. But the roots of paganism have been there longer and are stronger in the ungodly. Even this past week, I received uh, an email where our member of parliament was asking all of the downtown businesses and uh, uh, all of the uh, entities of, of Kingston society to get ready to start promoting Pride Month that is coming on June 1st. Now those aren't the roots of Christianity. The roots of paganism. And they run deep. And perhaps within Canada, we have had times when Christianity had more influence upon society. But even then, it was rarely lasting beyond a generation. How do we come and meet this society? Do we come with an angst and an anger? Do we come with insults? And, and, and do we come to do battle in the way that they do battle? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. In fact, uh, God's Word, Paul writes in another place to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 5. He says, for us as God's people, for the church, that our weapons of warfare are not carnal, that is, they're not of this earth. The weapons that we're going to use to strive against the pagan culture, it isn't going to be our government or civil law that's going to curb paganism and idolatry as it rises. Those aren't the weapons of our warfare. But the weapons that we have are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a society and culture that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Not in any way distinct from what Paul was writing to Titus about in Crete. 
He had the same issues back then that we are dealing with today. Why? Because as we're all accustomed to saying, there is nothing new under the sun. As as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes and said it several times, there, there's nothing new amongst fallen creatures. We just recycle our sins and they come out with the same expressive arrogance and ignorance against God. And that's what we're dealing with. And so what are the weapons of our warfare? Well, they're mighty in God because one of them is God Himself, the Holy Spirit. And prayer and God's Word and the Gospel, King Jesus and the armor of God that that we are given in Christ. All of these things come and meet us and help us. But I also think that we leave off this one that we're focused on this within the letter of Titus, and that is godliness. The godliness of God's people, dear Christians, the godliness of the church is as well mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that's where you see Paul dealing with it, especially as we come to our text, Titus 3, verses 1 to 8. Now this morning we're only focused on verses 1 to 3, but I want to see, I want us all to see the context in which these verses are set. Titus uh, 3, 1 to 8 brings us to the fourth of the five faithful sayings that are found in the pastoral epistles. And these faithful sayings, as you see, verse 8, it starts, this is a faithful saying. Uh, These faithful sayings are worthy of us to accept and to take into our lives. And these faithful sayings are trustworthy truths that pertain to the Christian life. And, and the focus of this fourth faithful saying is specifically on godliness. How through the transforming grace that is worked by the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are enabled to maintain a life of good works that exalts Jesus Christ and His gospel. His saving grace is working in us to bring forth the life of good works that ultimately glorifies our Heavenly Father who has loved us. And you can see it here. Uh, Verses 4 to 7 are probably the best known verses of this chapter. But look at how they are framed. Verse 1, Titus, uh, and I want to just say this too, keep this in mind. Paul is writing to Titus because these things have to be set in order in the church. The disorderliness of sinful conduct needs to be removed and the orderliness of godly conduct filling its place. This is how we confront the pagan, narcissistic world of our day. It's it's showing forth the godliness, the life-changing grace of Christ at work in us. And, And again... Paul brings us a contrast in in verses 1 to 3. A contrast that isn't just to talk about 
how we are different, but a contrast that is purposed to confront the pagan culture of our day. Just as we looked in chapter 2 about older and younger men, older and younger women, and how the characterizations of godlessness are challenged and confronted by the character of godliness. So here too, we are seeing this contrast between who we are now in Christ Jesus to what we used to be without Christ. And and that contrast is confronting narcissism, self-love. And this is the challenge for us. I, I, I want you to think on this question. And some of this flows from some of the reading I had this past week. But I, I want you to, to look to yourself and hear this question. How well have you shed that fallen, self-focused character of your sinful heart and put on the selfless, humble character of Christ. You think about that. How well? How well have you shed that fallen, self-focused character of your sinful heart and put on that selfless, humble character of Christ? Because that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. Verses 1 to 3. I'll ask you the question that Jerry Bridges dealt with in my devotional reading this past week. Why do you seek holiness or godliness? Why do you seek it? I'm sure most of us are saying, well, to glorify God. Well, that, that is true. But we miss something if we aren't looking to be more like Christ. Jerry Bridges spoke about a retreat that he was called to speak at. at, And it dealt with a lot of young people. But it was a a retreat about putting on Christ-likeness and dealing with besetting sins. And, And he had after... After he had spoken, he had several people come up and ask him about how to deal with particular besetting sins in their life. But he was disappointed because his message was much more about how to put on Christ. And not one person asked him about how to put on Christ. It was all about dealing with besetting Sins, And I'm not saying we shouldn't be dealing with them. But his, his thoughts on this were that it, it was as if the presence of sin in a person's life was of far more concern than the absence of Christ and Christ-likeness. It was as if a lot of these Christians wanted a moral reform but did not consider the necessity of putting on Christ in order to accomplish that. And he wrote, he said, when we sin, we are more vexed by its impact on our self-esteem 
then we are grieved about dishonoring God. And his point being, and I think it's Paul's point here in verses 1 to 3, is that this is still self-love. We're more concerned about our image and how we are presented before people than we are about the holiness and the glory of our God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is self-love, narcissism. And that self-love shows itself when sinful habits make us feel guilty, ashamed, and self-defeated, but don't bring us to the place where we are putting on Christ. (laughs) And his point being that the absence of Christ rarely has that same impact upon our lives. And, 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 and we know as we carry on in, in our text, and we're going to hear more on, on verses 4 to 7 next week, but we know it is God's gift of salvation. What He has given to us, what He has revealed to us, what He has made known to us in the appearance of His Son, what He has done in us by that regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, what grace from Jesus Christ that has justified us and removed the condemnation of our sins. We know the gift of God's salvation is what has dealt with our sins. It's what has transformed us. It's what's made us new creations. We know that. But do we know that with that comes the freedom to live godly in Christ? Now, I'm not saying don't be concerned about besetting sins. Just deal with them. And and we do need to deal with them. But I, I want you to see that there is a freedom given to you in Christ where you can live godly because Christ is in you. And that's why Paul here comes to deal with that freedom to live godly. You see uh, him talking in verses 1 and verse 8 about what godliness is. Both being ready for every good work and being careful to maintain <clears throat> excuse me to maintain good works what is godliness it's doing what is good <laughs> that's simply what it is <laughs> it's the outworking of the holiness of god that has been implanted in us by the holy spirit and so he says to us here be ready for every good work. And, and it's, it's flowing from what we heard from chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. If grace has taught you to deny ungodliness, then that same grace has also made you free and fit for godliness. It's simple logic. Doing good to the glory of God. And as much as as we are to be concerned about the presence of sin in our lives, God has made it so that we don't 
have to feel self-defeated or focus solely on how our sins make us feel, but rather He has made it so that when our conscience and our, our soul is pricked by the Spirit and we begin to feel the shame and the guilt and the defeat of sin, that we flee to Christ. Why? Both to be forgiven, but also to do good. <laughs> Isn't that what our... our uh, catechism teaches about repentance. It, it's not just hating and grieving sin and, and, and seeking mercy and forgiveness. That, that, that is the rich part of, of repentance. I'm, I'm not denying that, that we need that, absolutely. But it's also turning from it to what? to new obedience with a purposeful endeavor to do what is good. That grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness makes us fit and free to live godly lives. And that's what we have before us. And and here when Paul speaks about being ready for every good work and verse 8, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. He sets before us uh, three categories of good works that uh, he wanted Titus to get the church in Crete to focus on. Things that were key and important in their midst and still are today. But before I go there, I, I just want I just want to emphasize this. If you think that being a Christian is simply having a measure of moral reform in your life, if you think that being a Christian is just simply putting off visible sins that make you feel guilty and ashamed and self-defeated, then you've missed it. Uh, it it's like saying that someone is no longer a drunk because he stopped drinking. It's like saying someone no longer has a struggle with a sin because he's stopped doing it. There, There is in Christianity an understanding that it is only by the grace of God that these things are possible. Where we not just grieve and hate sin, but we we grieve and hate the sin that offends God and we flee to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. You know, someone can put off a sin and not be forgiven. Not know the mercy of God. Not walk in the new life that the Holy Spirit brings. So understand that. We're not talking about moral reform. We are talking about believing in Christ who saves us from our sins, who washes us clean, who brings about the forgiving mercies of God, who makes us accepted by God, who takes away our condemnation and gives us the spirit that new life begins to flow from us. That's a Christian. Does that describe you? Have you put your hope in Christ? You call upon Him. My friends, don't be satisfied with mere moral change. 
You need the Lord. And in Christ, we are made ready for every good work. And one of those good works, you see it at the very beginning of verse 3. And these are things that we need to be exhorted, rebuked with all authority. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. (laughs) Uh, We're hearing a lot of that lately, aren't we? I think it's timely that it's meeting us in our day. Because I know many struggle with this. We struggle as Christians to be subject to ungodly authorities. And yet Paul is calling the church on Crete to be such a people. We are called to be such a people. Why? Why Why say that to the church at Crete? Is it because Rome was so pro-Christian? <laughs> of course not. Because Paul here is concerned with us living out the law of God in sincerity. When we are making ourselves ready for every good work, we are looking to God's law and understanding. There's where we see what defines goodness. What shows us what is good for us and the way of rightness and truth. And there's, there's the preeminent uh, setting for it. And, and when he says, be subject to, uh, to rulers and to authorities, it's the principle of the fifth commandment. And, and as we go on in some of the other things that he lists for us in verses 1 and 2, we're seeing that he's basically saying these are principles of the second table of God's law, those last six commandments that deal with us showing goodness to our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourself, or more appropriately, I think, as Christ has made that commandment new, loving our neighbor as Christ has loved us. And that's what we're being called to. I I can think, you know, in the past month, in my conversations with people about uh, our rulers and governing authorities, how little subjection seems to flow from us. How much repenting in my own heart I've had to do. and, and, And again, replacing it with this good work. Subjection. don't know how many times I've heard the words, complete idiots. They're out of touch with reality. We need to get rid of them. They're intolerant. They're completely incompetent. How many of us have spoken one or more of those phrases within the last month? And we often justify it, don't we? We often justify that kind of language and that kind of disrespect and put it into its base form, disobedience and unruliness. We've often justified it as standing up for our rights or standing up for God. Do you know God never tells us to speak like that? And yet we do, don't we? It's hard. Look, I'll be the first to confess. It's hard not to get into that sphere and allow your mind to be filled with this negativity. And so we need to be reminded. And we're being reminded again here today. Remind them. Be subject to rulers and authority. To obey them. And and I think here Christians need to understand that civil obedience 
is not in opposition to obeying God or in opposition to your conscience. I think it's much more in opposition to our ego than anything. And and Paul, even as he says this, Paul is aware of the Sanhedrin that opposed the apostles and forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus, where we often go to justify our civil disobedience, or what some want to call it, lawful disobedience. Paul was aware of what they did. Paul was aware of Rome's opposition to Christ. Paul himself was opposed And so he's not saying here that it's a matter of obeying them versus obeying God. He understands that we have a higher obedience to God in all things. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, if your parents tell you to go steal something, you know that is wrong and sinful. You don't do it. And so when our country or our rulers lay down a law and says to us, no, you cannot worship. No, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus. No, we're going to obey God. But you know, they haven't said that to us. As much as some people say they have. It's it's our unwillingness to see that we can obey civil government to the glory of God. Christians are called to render honor to civil authorities as part of our obedience to God. And when they would persecute us to the degree of forbidding, well, then we will obey God. But we're not there. Obey them. Be ready for every good work. Uh, A collective phrase, secondly, that talks about the character of conduct that we are to exercise. Make ourselves ready for every good work. And he goes on there in verse 2 to define what that is. Speak evil of no one. Prepare your heart for that. What a thing to do if you know you're getting up and you're going to work and you know there's a person who is quite antagonistic to you, that you are entering into an atmosphere and climate where it's very easy for you to speak evil of that person. How you as a Christian need to ready yourself for every good work. God, put a bridle on my tongue. Don't let these lips speak evil or deceit of anyone. Help me by your spirit that when I see this person, I will have kindness flowing from my lips in respect of them. Help me to be ready. (laughs) And the character of conduct is one of being prepared for this. And here is the freedom that the grace of God brings us. A freedom to live godly to the glory of God. Where we don't blaspheme or curse or condemn or insult or exercise malicious speech. And you know the principle behind this, again, is because we have God's glory in mind when we do this. We know James 3 is a chapter that speaks about the challenge we have with an untamable 
tongue. But the reason why James even writes about why we need to guard our tongues from speaking evil of anyone. Listen to why. Because with it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. It's because we have a regard for who God is that we ready ourselves not to speak evil of anyone. And we, again, being ready for every good work, he goes on, be peaceable. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be antagonistic. Isn't that that just when we hear certain phrases, especially in our season? I mean, I'll confess, I'm tired of stay home, stay safe. And it almost always wants to erupt in a quarrel within me. I, I want to speak against it when I hear it. Well, when he says here, be peaceable, he's talking again about readying yourself. That you're not showing a character of one who is ready for a quarrel every time you hear something. Rather, be prayerful. Again, Father, by your Spirit, let what proceeds out of my mouth be spoken in love and edification to build people up, not to tear down. And gentle, gentle, ready yourself for gentleness. That is to be courteous, to be meek. It's the same word that's used, and we're very familiar with this, back in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. In fact, the Beatitudes speak to two of these points that Paul makes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are in their own spirit, gentle, courteous, who do not explode in anger, frustration. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Isn't that something, when you think about the cross of Christ, after he suffered and died, after Christ went through all of that agony and condemnation for our sins and never uttered a single insult against those who railed against him or offered a single insult even to the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross. He did not revile when he was being reviled, but he committed himself to the Lord. He exercised a gentleness, a meekness, even unto death. And what was the testimony of the centurion? Just by looking and seeing all these things. And he said, truly, he was the Son of God. And the same can be said of us as God's people. Even by an unbelieving tongue, they can look and see the the peaceable, gentle, the speak evil of no one, the courteousness of God's people and say, you know, they reflect God. (laughs) It brings glory to God. And there's the freedom. 
Be subject to authorities. Be ready for every good work. And last, in the good work area, show humility to all men. And and the absoluteness of the word all used twice there should strike us. Do this to everyone. All humility from within us to all men who are around us. And this is about exercising sincere mannerly grace to everyone. And 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 don't don't think this is more difficult for us today. What did Paul say about Crete? It was well known that uh, that the people of Crete were uh, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> Show all humility to them. Not easy, is it? <laughs> You, you, you see the demands that are placed upon us. But my friends, this is the freedom in Christ to live godly. Because you are prepared by the Spirit of grace to exercise graciousness to all. And that's why Paul takes us to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the kindness and love of God our Savior that has appeared uh, in verses 4 to 7. It's not easy. But the Spirit is the one who, who comes and gives us power and strength to do these things. So these are the good works that are set before us. And, and why I say this is freedom, because as Paul says, here's the godliness that you are called to exercise before men. He shows us the freedom that grace brought us in verse 3. And, and, and when you read verse 3, he talks about who we once were, but are no longer. This is in line with what Jesus said. John 8, verses 34 to 36, when Jesus was challenging the Jews and and showing them how He has made them free, they thought, well, what do you mean we're being made free? They said to Jesus uh, that we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. They had such a presumptuous, high proud view of themselves that they wouldn't even acknowledge that they were in bondage to Rome. And before Rome, it was the Greeks. And before the Greeks, it was the Medes and Persians. And before them, it was Babylon. They wouldn't acknowledge that they were in bondage to anyone. What are you talking about? You had to be delivered from Egypt. And all of that was a picture about being in bondage to sin. And so when they said to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone, so how can you say you will be made free? Here's what Jesus said, John 8, 34. Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not abide in a house forever. A son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, what? You shall be free indeed. And that's what Paul is getting at here. You're not a slave to sin. You have been set free by Christ. 
The love of Christ shed abroad in your heart has set you free from the bondage of those corruptions that often make for self-love. Well, that has been replaced by Christ. You have been freed from your rebellious nature. You're no longer foolish. (laughs) You're no longer conducting yourself in ignorance of God. Christ has set you free from your foolishness, from your disobedience, from your rebellious conduct. He set you free from being deceived. And that word deceived there in verse 3, it it talks about from from a straying conduct. It's It's the Greek word from which we get planet, a wandering star. That's what they mean. And it's used in in the New Testament to speak about a heart that wanders from God. But you're no longer deceived. Our fallen nature was in contempt of God and against authority and determined to do our own will. And as much as you had pleasure in that, it is sin. And you were a slave to that. But you have been set free from that rebellious nature. And and you have also been set free from your selfish tendencies, living, sorry, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy. You were a slave to your lusts. You thought more of your own selfish desires and pleasures and you were more prone to hurt and strike back with malice even against those who would be friends in order to maintain your selfish tendencies. And again, those things may seem strange to us, but, but it's, it's this envy and malice that arises when we don't get our own way. Talk to any mother who has a two or three year old. And you see that explosive anger or what we call that tantrum. And we say, where did that come from? My friends, that's the fallen heart. That's the heart bound in its depravity. It serves its selfish lusts and pleasures. Why did Cain strike out against evil? Uh, sorry, Abel? Why did he murder him? Because... Cain wasn't accepted. His offering wasn't accepted. Abel's was. Malice and envy took over where self-love reigned. We have been set free. Free. There's the freedom grace brings. And we've been set free as well from our consuming pride and ego. Hateful and hating one another. I think some of us have probably been free of these things for so long we've forgotten what it's like. But just stop and think how a child, and and this is within a Christian setting, how a child in your home whom you have loved and nurtured and disciplined and guided can suddenly strike back and just simply say those words, I hate you. And it happens. Because in the moment their consuming pride has struck out in hate against the ones who love. There's nothing beautiful about this corrupt, sinful soul 
the depravity. Again, how is it that a spouse who has pledged to love their other spouse, their spouse, uh, with, you know, for better, for worse, richer or poorer, etc., etc., how is it that they can then turn around and angrily say something hurtful to the one that they have pledged to love, or even to their children. The consuming pride of self-love. And it's it enslaves us. It's ugly. And it's odious, especially before God. But Christ has set us free. And if we are in Christ, what did he say in John 8.36? If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. <laughs> that, that's the point, And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, You once were like this, but not anymore. You are free to live godly in Christ. And you look at what Christ has given to you so that you can be one who does good to the glory of God. He has given you grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, forgiveness and love from a heavenly Father. He has given you His Holy Spirit who is empowering you. In fact, again, to remind you of this, things we need to be reminded of so much. The Holy Spirit has planted in you the very fruit of God with the purpose of warring against that sinful flesh that is yet abiding in you. You haven't been left to yourself to work out how to curb your tongue (laughs) or how to curb your self-love. Or how to curb your lusts and and your pleasure seeking. You haven't been left to yourself to deal with that. The Spirit has come not only with His presence, but He's also given you the love of God and joy of the Lord and the peace of God. Love, joy, peace. The very things that are of God. The love of God shed abroad in our heart. The joy of the Lord that is our strength. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The Spirit has planted these things within you to wage against the flesh so that you can live free to do good to the glory of God. This is your freedom. And God calls you to live as free people in this way. Obey the civil authorities because you know Christ is over them. Speak evil of no one because you're not their judge. God is. Show humility to all men because you know the meek are inheriting the earth. Let us be called the sons of God. Live free in Christ. Let's pray.